Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Haley Vatcher. She is an oral medicine specialist practicing in Charleston, South Carolina at Charleston Oral and Facial Surgery. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Haley, how are you doing? Having me, Grant. I'm doing pretty well. You know, trying to uh, enjoy this nice Labor Day weekend. Yeah, for sure. I'm so glad you reached out. We were able to kind of connect and get a podcast going. We haven't really talked to any oral medicine doctors on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you today. Can you just give us kind of a brief history of your training and your current practice setup? Sure. So, you know, obviously did my undergrad first and that was in Chapel Hill. And then I actually ended up doing a research-based master's after that for two years at UNC Wilmington. That led me to want to still continue doing dentistry. And so uh, I went back to Chapel Hill for dental school. And there I wanted to do a general practice residency. And so I was starting to apply at different places and I had gotten placed at Atrium Health, which is was formerly known as Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte. And, you know, I started really loving that medically complex patient base and also kind of some more oral facial pain and oral lesions were really exciting. So my director had uh, kind of poached me to do oral medicine from there. And I got very lucky just to continue on into the program there. So that was another two years essentially just did my GPR at Atrium Health and then also the peer oral medicine residency at Atrium Health as well. Our program has a prerequisite to do a GPR, so it was a perfect matriculation. My practice setup right now is, you know, I'm the only oral medicine specialist that practices strictly oral medicine in all of South Carolina. And I was selected for the Charleston Oral and Facial Surgery Group after another oral medicine had left to go back to her hometown. And the setup is really nice because the screeners do a good job of knowing what should be in my realm versus what should be in the surgeon's realm. I do a lot of TMD, kind of like a lot of other surgeons want to exhaust all of the conservative measures first before they put someone through surgery. So they come and see me. And a lot of times I prescribe, you know, muscle relaxer, sometimes the anticonvulsants or tricyclic antidepressants if I think that they're more of kind of going toward the neuropathic component. But physical therapy, I do a lot of trigger point injections, and then Botox. And then for more of the oral lesions, if anything is a soft tissue lesion, that usually comes to me. But the bony lesions will go to the surgeons. And then I treat other rheumatologic conditions, like obviously, you know, Sjogren's is in my realm. So I do a lot of the dry mouth workup for the rheumatologist. And 
you know, burning mouth as well. And kind of any other oral mucosal lesions or issues that don't really require surgery. Nice. Okay. That's great that you're able to practice oral medicine there and kind of integrate into that group. I'm sure if you're the only one in the state, you get a lot of people coming from distances to see you and good to be able to help that out. We definitely have a shortage here, I feel like, in Colorado. But yeah, so is it generally the patients will see the oral surgeon first and then the oral surgeons as well? This is kind of more of a medical issue. Let's send you to Dr. Vatcher or do they just go directly to you? How does that all work? So before I started, they were having to do that because obviously, you know, dentists and PCPs, they'll send them to the oral surgeon because they don't know about our specialty as much. And so the surgeons would have to say, hey, this is more in her, you know, wheelhouse. Let me, let's let until she starts. And then you can see her. However, with the former, you know, oral medicine specialist on board prior to me, basically it'd be the screeners that would try and delineate, hey, does this sound like burning mouth? Does this sound like dry mouth or like implantis? Or are they having just facial pain? They pretty much all come to me now first, and then I refer to the surgeon. A lot of our surgeons, you know, they obviously do the big maxillofacial surgeries, but a lot of them are implants and third molar removal. And so obviously those referrals go to them. But I'm the one who sees the TMJ patients first now and then decide if I think they should see the surgeon. That's interesting because I feel like a lot of the kind of TMD patients we see, probably majority, are more of a moral medicine type issue they have and not a surgical issue. You know, what are the ways that you help them? You mentioned some of the medications you prescribe, but how are you able to help them versus just you know, opening a joint, doing surgery and stuff like that. So, you know, you have to definitely delineate, you know, what is kind of the issue. I know you had Dr. Ben Heckler on here talking about TMJ and TMD, and he hit it around the head. You need to differentiate, you know, is this just a masticatory myalgia of, you know, one muscle and more of like an acute issue? Or is this like a myofascial pain where it's affecting, you know, temporalis, sternocleidomastoid, masseter, trapezius? scalenes, occipitalis. If all of those are sore, that's definitely a myofascial pain, but it's centrally mediated. So it means that a little bit more is going on there, you know, versus obviously neuropathic pain, you know, something like a trigeminal neuropathy or a atypical odontalgia, now known as persistent dentoalveolar pain, that can present as this too. So you definitely have to nail the diagnosis to know what would do best for them. But if someone, you know, has, I think, run-of-the-mill TMD where they've got myofascial pain, they have an anterior disc displacement, if they have clicking or popping, they've got, you know, bruxes, they have temporal tendinitis. Usually what I do is I offer a muscle relaxer just to take at night. The ones I typically use are Flexeril, Tizanidine, baclofen, metaxalone, or chlorzoxazone, just depending on what kind of sedative that they can handle. Also, you know, it's more for like flexoril and tizanidine are good for more acute issues. However, tizanidine is FDA approved to take every day for the rest of your life, up to three times a day. Interestingly, if they can handle, you know, the drowsiness that can come with it. So number one is the muscle relaxer. But some of these patients, if they've had chronic pain, you know, they 
the typical medication to start using is gabapentin and the muscle relaxer at the same time. Or you, if the gabapentin doesn't work, then you can go Lyrica. If Lyrica doesn't work, then I do the tricyclic antidepressants like nortriptyline, amitriptyline. But again, that's if something's like pretty chronic. So that's number one is medication. Number two is physical therapy. 85% of patients get better with physical therapy, and most of them feel better after one to two sessions, which is great. So I send them to a specific TMJ physical therapist. It's not just any physical therapist that, you know, says, oh, yeah, I can work on their neck. It's someone who's been trained in TMJ and extends down to the neck and shoulders and back and things like that. They're very good at delineating, you know, kind of where the issue starts and refers. Number three is trigger point therapy. So I offer dry needling, but what I like a little bit better is trigger point injections. That thought is that they have muscle knots in their muscles that can be triggering the pain or referring the pain. And a lot of the patients, you know, they have hyperalgesia when I, you know, press on their masseters or their trapezius muscles. And so the thought there is to go in with the needle and then you submit 3% carbocaine. And these patients are kind of in this pain cycle. It's like a circuit that the brain goes through. The thought of the trigger point injection is it stops that pain cycle momentarily, and then it tries to force the brain to create a new neural pathway when the muscle gets numb or when the muscle knot gets dispersed. And so it kind of does it two ways, right? The needle goes into the knot, and I'm like very meticulous about where exactly the pain is. And then when the carbocaine disperses, it breaks up the the muscle knot, aka the lactic acid and actin and myosin, you know, not releasing. And so it tries to give the body a chance to create that new neural pathway that's not in pain. Number four, if those don't work is Botox, you know, to try and see if we can deprogram the muscle. And I do all different sites, genotrapezius, some scalenes, mastoid, and then master and temporalis. I also offer occipital nerve blocks. I learned this from a neurologist. If people are having pain that is in the occipitalis, it's a really nice tool to try and, again, you know, get that pain cycle stopped to create the new neural pathway. And then, you know, after all of those fail, I do talk to the surgeon after that, you know, because then they have exhausted the therapies. Um, there are, in theory, two, like one more that you could do is more like actually a hypnotherapy, um, because sometimes, you know, you can retrain your brain on how it thinks about pain. But again, I know that's not as much literature based, um, but still has some place in this, you know, condition. But I do talk to the surgeon after I've exhausted the first, you know, a four to five. And then if the, if I feel like the patient could benefit from like a hypnotherapy, we can go that route before. But yes, so that's kind of the options I offer for that. Yeah, that's good to hear kind of your treatment methods and some of the more medicine type things that, that could be offered to these patients. I mean, I know TMD is, is probably different uh, for every patient and the causes are various and it can be very complicated with multiple issues. What, in your opinion, after seeing these patients is kind of the, the main um, contributing factors to this? You know, is it like a life event that creates a stress and then they're 
you know, triggering bruxing and whatever muscle tensing type habits? Is, is it their anatomy and the way their jaws are positioned that just lends more to stress on their muscles? Or what do you think it is? Yeah, it can be all those things, Grant. You know, definitely stress is one of these that has been talked about in the literature for sure. Um, it's just how the body, you know, responds to it. I mean, I personally have this condition and all of my stress is started my trapezius muscles. So I'm constantly doing trigger points for those. And, you know, one thing that's hard is you say you really got to get to the etiology, right? So what is stressing you out? And sometimes I even recommend going to um, a therapist, you know, to try and talk it through. But some people like me, I can't quit my quote stressful job, you know, or an attorney, you know, or an anesthesiologist or a surgeon, right? They're not going to be able to quit that. So this is kind of a way to manage it. You know, parafunctional habits are a big one. If someone like tongue thrusting or they have a nervous habit and moving their mouth around a lot, that can always over, you know, cause overuse of the muscles and fatigue them out. If someone has a very hard diet, that will fatigue the muscles out and kind of trigger all of this. Um, if someone, you know, is not really taking I guess, care of themselves in terms of, you know, personal health and mental health, they might not be relaxing at all, right? So maybe they're always just tensed up, they're always anxious. So they're not doing yoga or meditation or listening to relaxing music or trying to take time for themselves to really kind of get back to a center. That always is something. You know, if any history of facial trauma, that can obviously cause this. If you have joint hypermobility, like some of the Ehlers-Danlos patients, that is also a cause. We always say that TMD is multifactorial, you know, with the emotional component, the pain component, even like there's a genetic component too. It's, it's, I always ask if other family members have this because it kind of cues me into maybe that they do have TMD. And are there chronic pain conditions definitely play a role? Like, you know, for example, if someone has fibromyalgia, you know, I do have to take that into consideration. Also, you know, if you have migraine, TMD is a sustainer of migraine and migraine is a sustainer of TMD. So there's a lot of different things you got to think about because is exactly, you know, what you had said earlier. There's, there can be a different causes and you really want to try and, and nail that ideology so you can help them better. That's good. Yeah, you're bringing up a lot of things that I didn't really think of or remember. There's just so many issues that can play a role in this. And it probably takes some time to kind of sift through the patient history and their issues. To... Yes, the consults are not, you know, just a few minutes like they can be for wisdom teeth. You have to spend a full hour with them in my practice. Okay, so you must be good at talking to people, which is not the strength of most oral surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. My goal is to make them feel heard and that they can take the time to tell me their story. Um, interestingly enough, at our office, my dog became a therapy dog. And you know he's been an emotional support animal since he was two years old, but then he got his service animal. And so I do offer animal-assisted therapy so that they can, you know, hold him. He's like a 17-pound schnoodle, very sweet and calm. And the goal is to, you know, have him transfer his energy in a way to them. 
and they have him so that they can focus on telling me in a very concise way what's been going on and kind of take their mind out of the anxiety of being at the dentist, you know, quote unquote. So that's always nice too. And they do tend to open up more and they do tend to kind of feel lighter. And there's actually a research study done that if you have an animal in your practice or like an animal assisted therapy, over about 20 minutes, it dropped the cortisol level 20% in patients. So it's not just voodoo, you know, it does have a role and you can totally see the physiology at play when you kind of offer something like that. Oh, that's great. That's really cool to be able to offer that and just taking time, you know, from you as as in the dental profession to take time to listen to them and trying to figure things out and spend time. I think is probably something a lot of patients don't get, even from their general dentist. You know, generally we're kind of individuals that are to the point, let's get this tooth fixed, you know, in and out and that type of a thing. Yeah. And you know, it's not only do I want to spend that time creating that report, the patient, but I actually do need that time, right? You got to go over the pain quality, the quantity, the frequency. What's the worst pain you've ever been in? What's your average pain level? What's your current pain right now? Describe the pain. Is it a dull ache? You know, is it more lightning bolts? Is it sharp? Uh, is it constant? Is it intermittent? Is it spontaneous? Is it sporadic? Is it electric feeling? Is it last for two seconds? Does it last for three minutes? Does it last all day? You know, there's over 17 type of primary headache conditions, and they all are defined by how long they last and then the quality of the pain and how frequent the pain is too. So it's also my job to delineate all of these things. So I'm not missing out on someone that might have, you know, cluster headache instead, or is it tension headache? Or, you know, is this a trigeminal neuralgia actually, but presenting atypically? Is it a atypical facial pain, but presenting as TMD? So I do need the time to actually really understand. So it's great because they feel like they can open up to me and spend a lot of time with me, but I'm also using that time to really nail the diagnosis and help them more. That's awesome. Super cool. You mentioned that you're also treating some autoimmune type issues. What are the more common ones you deal with and how are you treating those? So the number one most common is when I see my dry mouth and dry eye patients. And obviously that one is Sjogren's. We're all very, you know, kind of aware of that one, but it's when the patient kind of say that they feel like their eyes are dry or grainy. They feel like they've got a dry mouth. They have joint pains um, in multiple places in their body. They could have Raynaud's phenomenon, you know, where their tips of their fingers turn either numb or blue or just cold. Fatigue is a big one as well. So I work with the rheumatologist to get the diagnosis underway. You know, we use the European League uh, criteria. And so that you have to get four points. You can get one point if you have, if you do the Schwimmer's test and one of your eyes is under five millimeters. You can get one point if you do the unstimulated salivary test and you have less than 1.5 ml of saliva in 15 minutes. And then three points get you, if you have a, sorry, a positive like anti-SSA, that gives you three points. 
And then if you have a focus score of one or more on a minor salivary gland biopsy, that gives you three points. And you can really only be diagnosed with Sjogren's from our standpoint if you have four points. So you either have to have a positive minor salivary gland biopsy and, you know, a Schirmer's less than five or an unstimulated less than 1.5 in 15 minutes, or you have to have the anti-SSA positive and then those other two. So number one is Sjogren's, but also, you know, lupus presents in the mouth. So I look at those types of lesions and see, you know, um, if they are presenting as a lupus lesion in the mouth. Sometimes people have RA and I can start to kind of Sometimes they've already been diagnosed with that, but that leads me into how I treat their TMD. You know, if they have some more of these rheumatologic conditions, that does kind of lead me on how to guide their case a little bit more. So what are the ways you treat Sjogren's syndrome? Yeah, for Sjogren's, you know, I do originally start off with the -the over-the-counter dry mouth products, anything from lozenges to sugar-free candies to gum if they don't have TMD to different sprays, you know, like we do biotin, xerostome, xylomelt is really good. That's where you kind of open the lip and put it in your vestibule and it sticks to your tissues. You can sleep with it. You know, my attending, he was an expert in Sjogren's. That's what he did every night because he didn't like waking up with a dry mouth. So those are some good ones, but anything over the counter, and I can send you a list that we use and we, you know, check for we check every six months and update the list on really good ones. I can always send those to you if you'd like, but we use those first. And then if they don't have, you know, closed angle uh, glaucoma, I pretty much don't do with any type of glaucoma, but, and if they don't have any heart or lung issues, then we prescribe parasympathomimetics. So either pilocarpine or civimaline. And we always start off with pilocarpine first because the insurance companies typically don't cover civimaline before they've tried pilocarpine. But civimaline has done better in the studies. And, you know, they can take pilocarpine really up to 30 milligrams a day. I like to just keep them at 20. So I like to do, you know, four tablets of five throughout the day. And then civimaline, it's 30 milligrams up to three times a day. I also offer salivary gland flushing. And so sometimes, you know, patients have blockages in their salivary glands, and it might be a way to kind of, you know, reset the gland too to, to in theory, start to produce a little bit better saliva. Maybe, you know, there's not many risks with this. We basically just use a part of a catheter that you place into the parotid gland or the submandibular gland, you know, the opening, the orifice. And I inject saline. The goal is to do three milliliters in each gland if we can. But some patients, I just have them tell me, hey, let me know when you feel that the gland is full. And then I stop. And, you know, the hope is to try and flush out any minor calcifications that have been forming that we've missed, you know, that we can't really see on the x-ray or something like that. And um, at least flush out these little glands and see if it can help at all. Do you do sialograms like before that? Just, I mean, do you ever do stuff like that to see where blockages are? Or does that not really help too much? You can, you know, it's not typically in my practice to do that. I just wasn't trained, you know, to go for a salogram. This is more just kind of like a empiric trial for the flushing. And, you know, in my other 
job at the hospital, we would just do it for free. And so sometimes I offer it for free for my patients as well, just depending on how often if I need to do it. Some, you know, I had one girl who she had two years of felt like she had blockage on her submandibular gland and she would have green mucus coming out is what she described. And we would, you know, get a CT scan, we get an MRI, nothing would really come up. You know, she was really young and had lost a lot of weight because of it too, because it was very painful to eat. Within just one salivary gland flush, we did both submandibular glands. She was completely better by the next time, which was amazing. We definitely got a lot of debris out of there. You know, it wasn't debris that would show up on some of these images, you know, oddly. Like, you know, maybe the MRI said that the gland was just a little bit larger, but that was it. And um, we started flushing it out and she immediately was pain-free after just one flush, which is amazing. So it's just going to be interesting on how people present. Yeah. And then I was going to ask, do you treat any of the vesiculobolus type diseases? Yes. Yeah, those are some autoimmune diseases that I didn't discuss that I do treat. You know, the surgeons do want me to see those because in theory, you know, you don't do surgery for those patients. The only surgery you would do is obviously to get the biopsy. So that is definitely my bread and butter, you know, lichen planus, pemphigus vulgaris, mucous membrane pemphigoid. I definitely treat these and we do the two sample biopsies, one in formalin and then one in Michelle solution three millimeters away and trying to be very careful not to sever the epithelium because the pathologist really needs that information to make a good diagnosis. And so, you know, I do the biopsies and then I'll do a lot of steroid rinses. And then sometimes it's not the best in terms of efficacy, but we do intraoral steroid injections to a lesion that's very stubborn. Like I had a pemphigus patient who Everything else in his mouth got better except this one ulcer in his pterygoid area, like in the retromolar trigon. It just was very stubborn. And so we've done injections, you know, and obviously we talked to his doctors at wherever, you know, he's been seen with the dermatologist about it and they always give their blessing. But we would try those and I pretty much leave it up to the dermatologist or the rheumatology doctor on how much oral steroid to give. So that's kind of, you know, where my scope will end. I would rather them prescribe, you know, the low dose steroids, even though I, I'm happy to do it or at least start it off. But it can be a little tricky just depending on how long have they been on steroids. A lot of these patients, you know, they get steroid dosing with a lot of these conditions. And, and so I do kind of start that. But if they're not getting better, then I, you know, will refer to their doctors. Hey, real quick attention to all residents and fellows who graduated within the last six months. Kalos Martin is offering one-time sale pricing for newly graduated oral and maxillofacial surgeons. The sale includes discounts on a BNR Cairo Pro with five hand pieces, the Spectra G6 headlight, which is awesome, oral surgery instrumentation, and in-office bone graft kit components. This is an incredible deal, so don't forget to ask your KLS reps about this. So please enjoy. Yeah, I was going to ask that, like, how does that work with the rheumatologist and who prescribes what, and how do you do that treatment when 
there's some maybe overlap of what you guys do? Yeah, you know, we are doing all the mouth stuff is what I like to say. We definitely plug them in with the dermatologist because obviously with some of these conditions, you can start to have skin lesions. Interestingly enough, if someone has pemphigus and they have skin lesions and they have not had any steroids, their mortality goes down 80%. Crazy enough. It can be very scary. Patients have died from it. You have to check if they have skin lesions. You know, most of the time it presents in the mouth, but checking for skin lesions is a big deal. And so I always do refer to the dermatologist just to have a baseline consult. You obviously want to have ophthalmology on board because as we know, it can present in the eye. Pemphigoid is the typical one for that. So ophthalmology is on board. And then um, you can involve the rheumatologist as well. Although in my practice, typically the dermatologist, you know, I had found someone who was an expert in pemphigus. They are comfortable doing most of the medical management as well as the dermatological management, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. You know, we had Dr. Bob Marks do kind of an autoimmune type. I watched that one. That was a good one. <laughs> Yes, he's so great at powering through all these various diseases and issues. And I know, again, there's probably a whole host of issues that can trigger these things. But, you know, what are some of the main causes of the more autoimmune type things that you see? Is there something more common to cause Sjogren's versus something that causes lichen planus? Or is it similar stuff for all of them? You know, like in Planus, there right now there is no known cause. We know that it's not a true autoimmune condition. It's more immune-mediated condition, you know, because you can't test for an antibody for like in Planus. All of these can really just come out of nowhere, right? It's autoimmune. You're not sure what you did to mess up, you know, the immune system at that point. But yeah, there's definitely no known cause for like in Planus at this point. They're really trying to to look at that. But they are seeing that different interleukins are at play for that one. And, you know, sometimes I think people just, they tell me for like in Planus, at least they've been eating spicy food their whole life. And then all of a sudden it like really burns their mouth. And so that's kind of like when it has started. But any of these can also just go into remission, right? All of a sudden, you know, you could wake up and you feel like you don't have this stuff anymore with, you know, pemphigus, pemphigoid, like in planus, it, I wouldn't say it's common, but at all whatsoever, but it can happen. You know, the autoimmune system could, you've done enough treatment to maybe confuse the system, if you will, and it somehow goes back to normal. Sounds good. I brought this up with Dr. Marks, but I recently read this book called The Plant Paradox by Dr. Gundry, and he and his book talks about how, you know, certain fruits and things we eat have these lectins in it that can trigger autoimmune reactions. And he claims that if you follow his diet and you eliminate all those things, that it, it can eradicate all autoimmune diseases. That's a very controversial topic. However, we do wonder, you know, how much does diet play in these things and how difficult it is to pinpoint you know, what in your diet could be causing these reactions and, and all that stuff. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, that's a good question. I do because several years ago, I read what's called the China study. And it's a son and a father. And one is a PhD and the other one is an MD. 
And they have dedicated their lives to trying to find out if diet plays a role in medical conditions. One of them had worked in a lab for years and years and years before he went to medical school, working on like different proteins and fat and carbohydrates. He was kind of like a bench scientist. And the other one, the one that had the PhD, he went into those things as well, you know, seeing his father probably be so excited about trying to figure this out. And, you know, they claim that 97% of all cancer is not genetic. And by that, they mean it's diet related. And I mean, I could definitely see how it plays a role because that's pretty much the only thing that we ingest into our body, not thinking about environmental, you know, pollutants. And, you know, if you're, I guess you're the 3% that has that genetic abnormality that can cause you to have these cancers, you know, the only thing that we're changing, right, is our diet. And they would they claim that they could reverse your diabetes, your high blood pressure, your high cholesterol with um, a diet change. And the diet would be whole foods and vegan foods. So they had argued that animal proteins can cause some of these carcinogens to form and then you, you know, get a cancer or they start that two hit system, you know, that we've talked that like people know about for the cancer. So I would not write it off at all whatsoever for like kidney stones. For example, they tell you to stay away from like kale and they tell you to eat citrus foods so that they don't come back. Right. They say like, you should drink lemonade every day. So diet definitely can play a role, you know, number one in medical conditions, but I'm not sure. I haven't personally, I will now read that book, but I haven't personally studied much about that. But I think that is the next step that I want to go into my practice is more like integrative medicine, because I know more people are becoming more holistic. And, you know, we are holistic to a point, right? We always try conservative first and then go more invasive. So this would be a good thing to add to my practice is knowing how diet and lifestyle changes can affect people's conditions. I mean, lifestyle changes for TMD, right? Like posture is huge. Physical therapy, the first thing you learn is how to sit right and that your shoulders should be in line with your hips, should be in line with your neck, because even like a poor posture can cause an onset of TMD. So it is good to kind of think about the whole picture. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yes, I've suffered with some of my own, you know, autoimmune type things, Renauds and various body pains and stuff. And for me personally, the only real thing that helps is diet. And I've been surprised about how really eliminating processed foods. And I feel like this is a whole other tangent topic, but with commercialization of foods and how everything, you know, especially in our country is driven by capitalism and everyone wanting to make foods that last longer and can be transported more places or just more chemicals and more things that can trigger lots of reactions similar to autoimmune type things. So definitely. I actually was an environmental science major, you know, before all of this. And we learned about the carbon footprint that we put on by doing all these things to the foods, right? And how much like different processed foods can really affect someone. I mean, right now going on like locally where I'm from, the Camp Lejeune, you know, base, they had allowed polluted water to go into their drinking system. 
this was, you know, at least, gosh, I guess 70 years ago now, but now we're seeing the effects and, you know, I've had people pass away that I knew that is directly linked to that. And they were, they had benzene in the water, they had different um, pollutants in the water. And so, you know, kind of this theme of what we're exposed to and things that we know might not be good for us, but it's keeping food fresh longer, right? Or it's like modifying the food to continue to stay in that can and not expire sooner. I mean, it all can play a role into how our bodies really take that. And, you know, obviously bacon is now a level one carcinogen. There's definitely a role that this plays in cancer, in my opinion. You know, like in the China study, they talk about how the people that were in rural China, who they didn't have access to meat, you know, they had to eat more just conveniently whole foods and vegetables. They had way less incidence of cancer than the other part of China where they were eating a lot of animal products. And, you know, obviously the causation correlation, people could argue that, but at least you know that this is being kind of looked at and we're trying to figure it out. A lot of the oncologists, they start to recommend a Mediterranean diet when they get diagnosed with cancer. Why would they do that if there's no role, you know? So I do think that it does play a role, like you were saying. Well, this has been really helpful, you know, for um, listeners, because we do have a large contingent of listeners that are dental students and are trying to figure out where to go with their career. You know, what can you just give us a feel for like what the process is to become an oral medicine specialist? Sure. So you obviously do your dental school. I would definitely urge them to shadow an oral medicine specialist while in the first year of dental school. I didn't learn about this until actually my residency. I didn't even know it was a specialty because my school didn't offer it as a specialty. Even though we had professors who did oral medicine, I was kind of confused because they were lecturing on medical conditions and I just wasn't quite sure. You know, they didn't really do a good job explaining what they do in the full scope of oral medicine because it's very wide. You know, you could have people that just work at MD Anderson and they work with the radiation oncologist and they educate the patients about what to expect and they treat their oral mucositis or their trismus, you know, or their dry mouth, right? Like you could just have that job or you could do like me, like I'm wide open private practice, or you could have a university job um, an education setting, being a medical director because you have all this medical knowledge that you got after dental school in your residency. So it's very wide. So I want I would definitely encourage them to start shadowing all the specialties in the first or second year of dental school just to see like what does you know hit home. The route is dental school, and then for some programs they require a GPR before, so you would do a general practice residency, and then you would you know, apply for an oral medicine specialty, but also there are some where you don't need the GPR. And like I know, for example, Harvard, they have a three-year oral medicine program that you apply for out of dental school. Right now, to my knowledge, there's only six oral medicine programs in the nation. And so they could easily, you know, go on this website and kind of check out which which ones kind of are more interested or like they're they're more interested in what they have to offer right like for my program we're a lot more hospital based 
and which is in Atrium Health in Charlotte. We're a lot more hospital-based and we encompass the full scope of oral medicine, whereas some other programs, they might just focus on the cancer side of things, or they might, you know, just do more of the oral facial type of side of things, just kind of everyone has their little niche. So that's kind of how you become one. And, you know, this kind of leads me into why we're really well suited for an oral surgery practice. And that's because my residency, we were in with the maxillofacial surgeons. So like our department was Department of Oral Medicine and maxillofacial surgery. It was great because, you know, all the dentists refer to oral surgeons for all this stuff because they, again, we only got ADA recognized in 2020, but we've been around for about 70 years or so prior to that. But people don't really understand. They don't know that we're out there because usually, again, we're in university or educational settings, but now we're finally making our way into private practice because we've kind of proved that this does have a role there. You know, so, and it's really great, I think, for the surgery practice of it because, you know, the surgeons will know that patient exhausted all of their conservative therapies before seeing them because some surgeons require that anyway, right? The surgeons can have a one-on-one communication with me so that we are understanding what the patient has gone through thus far. I can always give an internal referral to me so that the patient doesn't have to go outside of the practice you know, to get like an oral facial pain specialist, you know, like I'm right here. Or if like they think they need to go to the rheumatologist to get worked up for Sjogren's, I'm at least doing the salivary piece of it. And like it's such a wide variety. So people will refer to the surgery group more knowing that there's someone there that, you know, does all of these other conditions. And you can educate your staff to be a little bit more geared toward oral medicine, but I will argue that the oral surgery staff are already going to be really well versed for oral medicine rather than training a dental staff. You know what I mean? Because probably the oral surgeons have seen some of the stuff that I treat, right? Like before I got there, they were treating the mucoceles or they were, you know, prescribing the physical therapy. So the oral surgery staff are already kind of tuned into like what goes on. And we bill both medical and dental, just like oral surgery, whereas, you know, dentists are just doing dental. You know, I always say that I take the stuff off of, you know, your guys's plate that you don't want that's not surgery related. And that can all come to me. So then that allows you guys more time to do implants and wisdom teeth and, you know, BSSOs and any other like remove, you know, cancer removals that. Otherwise, the patient would have to wait maybe months to see you. I'm at least taking some of these patients off of the schedule that I love to see. And that gives you guys more time to be productive. Oh, yes, for sure. I really wish we had a good oral medicine specialist to refer to here in the Denver area. I often ask myself, like, why is it that oral surgery ended up getting these patients? And I, I really, I think the the thought from the dentist is like, so-and-so probably went to medical school or they, you know, treat pathology or just, I don't even know what this is, but the oral surgeon, maybe, you know, is probably the smartest, most trained person in our field, just send them there. And so I'm getting, you know, like all oral surgeons, like you see burning mouth on your schedule or, you know, sores and stuff. And you're like, well, this is a medical problem. This is not a surgical. And, and maybe too, because the oral surgeons are the most likely to do a biopsy, that's where they would send us. But then 
we do a biopsy and now a lot of the oral surgeons are like, okay, now what, you know, okay, we know it's whatever, lichen planus or, uh, you know, but, but then we don't really treat this. This is a medical treatment. And so now how, where do I hand this patient to? And I think a lot of us will just go and say, well, this is more autoimmune, go to the rheumatologist or you're not a surgical TMD patient. So here's, you know, a handful of muscle relaxants, good luck, that type of thing. And I just feel like we're just so inadequate at treating these things, don't have surgical treatments. And so we're kind of fumbling through some of this stuff. Yeah. And that's, you know, where oral medicine comes in is because it is a medical problem, but the PCP isn't trained in the mouth, right? So like, that's why these patients, they get fumbled around. The average patient I see, they've been to four to six specialists before they come to see me. And I kind of like to use the analogy that the PCP is like the general dentist, the cardiologist is like the oral medicinist, and the cardiac surgeon is the oral surgeon, right? They have a nice lineage where the cardiologist handles all the medical heart conditions, and then the cardiac surgeon does all the heart surgeries. That's kind of how like oral medicine is to me, is we are the center of medicine and, and dentistry or oral surgery in a way. Because we're the ones who have all the medical knowledge of the mouth that the PCP, that the ENT, you know, might not have or want to do, you know, because ENTs are, they're also surgeons, right? They don't want to handle burning mouth either. But I, that's, you know, like why we're here is because we're here to do all of the things that you guys don't want to do, <laughs> but don't require surgery that we can help them medically, though. That's terrific. It's fantastic. For our listeners, I just pulled up the programs. It looks like the six are Carolina's Medical Center, Harvard, UCSF, UPenn, U Washington, and Tufts University. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, and Carolina's Medical Center is now known by Atrium Health, but okay. same thing. Yeah, that's the Charlotte one that I went to. Got it. All right. Well, in my mind, this is only going to become you know, like a more prolific expounding specialty with just the, I mean, in one, just all the chemicals and stuff that we're exposed to, and that's only going to get worse over time. And I think we're going to see more of these oral medicine type issues, but with stress in our society and how much that contributes to TMD and all the various uh, myalgias that can happen in the head and neck is just, it's only getting worse over time. So we're in desperate need of people like you, and this is a great specialty. I'm really excited about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. And I'm so happy that oral medicine is finally moving to private practice because we are trying to show that we do have stuff to offer that these patients can get access to without having to be on a three-month wait list, you know, at the big hospital, because that's where maybe the oral medicineist works there. We I do know they're also expanding oral medicine programs too. Like I know Duke is trying to create one. And I think High Point University, they have plans to do one. So at least we're expanding out so we can help all these people that have been bounced around, you know, for years and years and we can, you know, finally help them. Yeah, this is great. If there are listeners who kind of have further questions about um, your specialty or certain, you know, disease process we've talked about, are you okay if they contact you or what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Please give them my contact information. I'm happy to answer any questions they have, especially if it you know, excites a dental student or someone in residency to want to do oral medicine. 
I can you know, definitely talk to them about that. But also any other questions people have about what we chatted about today, happy to help them understand more. Okay, cool. Then I can put your email in the show notes if you're good with that. Okay, real quick, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions because it's been a while since I did this because I've had a lot of repeat people on the podcast. So first question, what's the best book you've read in the past year? <laughs> well, I will say that I've been, you know, studying for boards in the past year. So I've only been reading pretty much all of our textbooks that were required. But I love Neville and Dam, you know, oral pathology. That's a great one. They have everything covered, you know, cover to cover. And crazy enough, Dr. Neville works in South Carolina. So I'm able to send my biopsies to him. So that's always been really cool. But I I have to go with that one. I haven't had time to pick up an actual reading book just because of how our board exams work. So I have to I'll have to go with that one, Grant. Oh, I'm so sorry. You need to really get out there and read some good I books. Do. I do. I will piggyback off that answer and say I do love Neville and Dam. And it's so funny you mentioned that because I actually sent all my biopsies to Doug Dam, who was, and he's in Kentucky. And I just love him. He's so awesome. Like, I'll send him something if there's any questions or he'll call me up in my cell and, hey, let me talk to you about this. And let's, you know, tell me about more about the patient. He's just so thorough and I love him. He's a yes. great pathologist. So great book. It's a good one for sure. All right. Next question. What is, what's been the most helpful non-oral medicine thing that you've done that helps you with your daily oral medicine skills? I would say that exercise is very beneficial for this because, you know, oral medicine is, you're more spending time in the brain with all, with like burning calories, right? Like I'm kind of like the thinker of the group because I, I don't do a ton of surgery like you guys, you know, I feel like you guys' kind of job is can be a lot more physical, whereas I'm, you know, talking, I'm more like a physician in a way, getting the information and then what medicine is best, right? So I'm constantly using my brain. So it kind of makes my body feel like I need to get up to that level. One thing I like to do is Beachbody. They're the makers of P90X and Insanity. They offer everything from yoga to Pilates, to, you know, cardio, to different types of um, high intensity interval training. And that has really helped me, you know, just get all my energy out after the day. And it kind of like aligns my brain with my body in a way that I've kind of exhausted both of them and tried to do the best of all of my ability. Um, it really, you know, relieves stress. It also helps my posture yoga right and meditation like i said earlier is very good for tmd and i have this condition again so you know constantly lengthening and stretching and making sure things aren't contracting has been very beneficial for even my condition but also i can tell the patients you know this has helped me i think that this could help you and that's why i do kind of um, recommend these things and obviously you know exercise in a medical training, I learned that's the number one anti-aging tool we have is exercise. And you know, not just cosmetically, but just in terms of all of your organs. So I think that the longer that I can live, that means the longer I can help these patients. That a lot. That's awesome. Do you, real quick to follow up on that one, is there a certain app or something you use for meditation or is this 
just kind of do on the side or how do you do that? I actually just go onto YouTube. There's a lot of, you know, I don't know. I just type in like meditate or music guided meditation. So I really like the nice and soft, beautiful music in the background. It kind of lets me get more into myself and not think about, you know, the outside world as much. I just go on YouTube rant and just kind of type in meditation and I've tried, you know, like some I get into and then I try different ones by different people so I can get a, a big variety, but I'm kind of, you know, I'm not very picky when it comes to that. Okay. Yeah. Tons of good stuff on YouTube. I'm a big fan of Deepak Chopra's stuff. So I've always listened to what he's got. Yes. That's a good yes, that's a good one. <laughs> About best movie or TV series you've seen in the past year? You've probably been um, studying all year, so you haven't watched anything. Yeah, but I did start watching something. Like, I love Suits. Okay. Um, my dad was an attorney, and I watched it like 10 years ago, but then I started re-watching it. I love that one right now. I really loved Top Gun as one of the best movies. Um, that- yeah, it was so good. And I just love how we could see Tom Cruise. You know, you could have watched the the original one and then you watch this one it's just so cool how, like the parallels are there but you kind of see him grow as a person and the fact that he does his own stunts was so cool you know it made the movie feel like all the more real <laughs> so I really loved that movie that was a really good one Lincoln Lawyer is also a good one on Netflix I don't know why I love all these law shows but <laughs> it's just kind of something that like I don't know anything you know law school wise and I kind of like can understand like why people go into that it's a whole different world you know and so maybe it's an escape from my world going into like a different career that I you know could have thought about going into but glad I didn't actually because I really love what I do (laughs) yes I feel like I'm surrounded by lawyers my father-in-law is a lawyer brother-in-laws I have lots of friends that are lawyers how about that but they're just so articulate you know and they're so good with their words and the way they ask questions and i feel like maybe there's that reason why you went into oral medicine you're good now at you have that ability to talk to people and use your words which there you go (laughs) for the oral surgeon we don't go to using your words to start we go with using your hands let's solve this with with a drill or a saw and get this job done right (laughs) it's a good skill to have All right. Last question. What is your favorite quote? I really like time that you enjoy wasting is not wasted. This rings a bell to a lot of people, right? Like in residency, you're constantly thinking, oh my God, I could be studying. I could be, you know, doing that. Oh, I should be at the hospital. Like, you know, and it's like, you start to feel guilty that you're enjoying your time. Same if you take a vacation sometimes. A lot of people feel guilty or they don't take their full days during the year because we've, as a society, kind of had this thought of like, oh, I got to like be in the office. I got to be hardworking. But really like time that you enjoy and you are giving yourself into it. A lot of people think, oh, I'm wasting time right now. But No, it's not true. Time that you enjoy wasting is not wasted. And that's because it actually gives you some, you know, time in your life to really like rethink about things, to align yourself with your morals or values again. You finally are resetting yourself. 
And it was kind of like, what are your, what, what are your other podcasters talked about with surfing? You know, he feels like he can get that out and then be his best self, you know, the next day. Right. Cause burnout is a big thing. I know you have a podcast about that. We don't want to get to the burnout stage at all. So giving yourself time, you know, to relax and do what you enjoy, even if someone else says you're wasting time, I think it's wasted because in the long run, you know, you're going to accomplish more by taking those breaks. I like that. Yes, I totally agree with this. Good message. I think it's important. When I was in residency, somebody also said the quote, you know, work to live. I don't live to work. Similar type thing that sometimes we can get so caught up in work that when we're not doing it, we're feeling guilty or we can't leave work alone and we're doing other stuff, but our mind is at work. And it's important to have mental breaks and find things that can really let you decompress and enjoy life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Haley, taking time to talk to us and expand our minds on oral medicine and some of the things that are out there for our patients. That's really helpful. Yes. Thank you, Grant. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and have chatted with you guys. And hopefully, you know, we can help all of our patients together that you guys get referred, but really they should see me first and then vice versa. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, good. I'll put your info in our show notes and our listeners can reach out to you or me to get to you, that type of thing. But let's help people get more informed. So yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Talk to you later. See you Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.